as C.S. Lewis says, God can give us moments of joy, but he doesn't give us settled happiness. Because if he gave us settled happiness, we wouldn't look up and find him. It's watering time, everybody. It's time for Apollo's Watered, a podcast to saturate your faith with the things of God so that you might saturate your world with the good news of Jesus Christ. My name is Travis Michael Fleming, and I am your host. And today on our show, we're having another one of our Deep Conversations. Last week, we started a deep conversation with Dr. Mark Talbot about the subject of suffering. I know, it's not everyone's favorite subject. In fact, you may be tempted to skip this over. Don't. In fact, If you haven't listened to last week's episode, I would recommend going back and listening to that one first, because everything that we're talking about today builds upon that. And this is a deep conversation. And what I mean by a deep conversation is this. These are the conversations that you're not going to have in church, at least not very often, or very few churches actually have them. In fact, The more people that I encounter that are followers of Jesus, there's this surface idea of faith. And as we see people around us begin to deconstruct or become disenfranchised, I find it's often because they haven't had the dialogue partners that can help them wrestle through the questions that they have in their hearts. And suffering is the subject that looms large over every single one of us. Whether it's our own personal suffering that we've experienced, our own trauma, or the suffering of others, it causes us to question the goodness of God. If God is so good, then why does all this suffering exist? Is he cruel? Is he sadistic? Or is he really good? And why would a good God allow suffering? These are just some of the questions that we inevitably wrestle with. And that's why I delight in talking to Mark Talbot. Because Mark doesn't come to it as uh, simply a philosopher, although he is. He comes as a follower of Jesus who has experienced deep and chronic suffering for most of his life, if not almost all of his adult life, for sure. It's a conversation that will bless you. It's a conversation that will challenge you. It's a conversation that will help equip you so that you can understand your own suffering as well as be able to dialogue with others to help them understand their own. Conversations like this one can happen because of listeners and supporters like you, who have a holy discontent with the status quo and want to go deeper, who long to make a difference where they are. We are a listener-supported show, and we can't do this without your involvement, without your partnership. That's why we are kicking off what we're calling our 10 for 10 initiative. We're looking for 10 new watering partners this month who will give at least $10 a month. That's two coffees at Starbucks or one if you get something super fancy. Go to apolloswater.org, click the support us button. You'll be glad to know that you're bringing the water of life to the desert places in our modern world. Now, let's get to Mark Talbot. Happy listening. When I think of the topic of suffering and even how you've delved into these concepts and subjects, it made me wonder, 
what does the contemporary evangelical church miss about suffering? Simply because it seems that suffering is foreign. So going back to the original part of this question, what does the evangelical church miss about the topic of suffering or misunderstand? Maybe there are two parts to the answer, Travis. One would be that we've been infected by the health and wealth gospel, where uh, we think that if we are God's children, then he's going to specially bless us in this life. When Jesus said to his disciples, warned them in John 17, so in other words, right before the crucifixion, in this life, you will have trouble. You will have persecution. You will face awful things. Of course, in the synoptic gospels, he talks about taking up our cross and following him. What has happened in a large part of the American church is that we have had our sense of what this life is to be like undermined by the health and welfare gospel, health, health and wealth gospel. It seems to me that in a more general sense, something that sometimes happens, often happens, is that evangelicals think, well, because I have put my faith in God's work in Christ, therefore, um, God is going to treat me as a son or daughter, and that's all going to be pleasant. But of course, Hebrews chapters 11 and 12 tell us otherwise. You mentioned on your website that you think that perhaps that there's reason to think that perhaps Apollos wrote Hebrews and uh, how important the book is. And of course, chapter 11 is supposed to be telling us the way in which Abraham and his son and his grandson and Moses and other Old Testament characters endured through awful things because, as is put in chapter 13, they were looking for a city that has foundations. Uh, in chapter 12, we're just told outright that whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. And the brutal way to put it, and this is the way the King James used to put it, because um, at the time the word wasn't taken, it was taken more descriptively than as a kind of mild curse word. The brutal way that it's put in Hebrews 12 is it's only the bastards he leaves alone. Only those whom he does not acknowledge as his children. And so what it comes to is that because we have so much, we tend to think, oh, I can be satisfied. In affluent communities, among other things, that includes the fact that you may have a pretty good retirement account. And you can think, wow, I've got that retirement account. I'm going to be okay. It can be that it's easy to get to a dentist. It's easy to get to a doctor. It's easy to buy what you want, all those kinds of things. It's very easy for that stuff to seem as if it satisfies us, but it does not. Robert Bella, the great sociologist, wrote a book in 19, it was published in 1987, I think, called Habits of the Heart. Mm -hmm. And he was, in fact, um, he was doing surveys of people and what happened to them, among other things, when they suffered. And even the non-Christians, I think of one person in particular, admitted that when he had gone through a divorce and things had fallen apart for him, that it had been good for him, because before that, 
the target in his life was material success. After that, he realized, no, that doesn't satisfy. I need things deeper. The guy had become interested in classical music and so on and so forth. Nothing like what he needed to become concerned about if he had been a Christian that we know he needed to become concerned about as we think about it as Christians. But in other words, suffering, even with regard to non-Christians, tends to clear the sight or can. Maybe one thing we need to be careful about here is that we need to make clear to people that suffering does not necessarily do that. I find when I'm dealing with Christians who have suffered really, really horribly, when they're in the midst of profound suffering, sometimes it's touch and go for quite a while on whether or not they're going to be able to reaffirm their faith, to believe that God is, in fact, wholly good and all-powerful and concerned about them and so on and so forth. And sometimes they lose their faith. Mm. Um, Suffering is, in a sense, a test of whether or not we are willing to endure despite everything. One of the ways that C.S. Lewis put it was that faith is more or less the art of being able to continue to affirm what you have good reasons to believe is true, even when your feelings are screaming at you that you ought to abandon those things. We're going to take a quick break and hear a word from our sponsors, and we'll be right back. The most important Bible translation is the one you read. At Apollos Watered, we use several different translations when we're studying, preaching, or teaching. But again and again, we keep coming back to the New Living Translation, the NLT. That's why we are excited to partner together. We are united in the belief that understanding the Bible changes everything. Because if you can't understand it, then you won't read it. We want you to know the God of the Bible, to water your faith so that you will water your world. That's why we recommend getting an NLT. It's the Bible in the language we speak. It's not foreign or complicated, but up close and personal. To save some money, go to Tyndale.com. Use the promo code NLTBibles. It will give you 15% off. There's an NLT for everyone, from kids to adults, devotional Bibles, study Bibles, and so much more. Get one today, because understanding the Bible changes everything, and the NLT is the Bible you can understand. In many churches, as you've seen, are referred to some people lose their faith in the face of suffering and we have seen the articles of so many people who are deconstructing do you think that part of the reason why this is happening is because of the church's failure to address the subject of suffering from a christian viewpoint in helping people craft and understand their own story within the greater judeo-christian framework or biblical framework Exactly. Exactly. It seems to me that when people tell me that they want more faith, that I need to say, okay, you're going to have to roll up your sleeves. You're going to have to do some work. It's more or less Romans 12, 1 and 2, where we are, because we've seen what God has done for us, we offer our bodies as living sacrifices. And as J.B. Phillips put it with verse 2 of Romans 12, don't let the world squeeze you into its own mold. Mm -hmm. Well, 
it's constantly trying to squeeze us into its mold. And in order for it to go otherwise, we've got to be willing to take time to understand the full Christian story. One of the ways that I put it is that when it says that we should offer our bodies as living sacrifices, we need to realize that this involves investing both time and money in our Christian faith. And sometimes when I'm out speaking, I'll kind of poke the audience and say, are you willing to spend a hundred bucks for the International Standard Bible Encyclopedia's four volumes in order that when you have a topic that you're interested in, you can look it up and see what scripture has got to say about it. And most of the people would never do that. hundred bucks on something like that. Um, the idea of buying books in order to grow in the faith is a, a really unusual thing to them. And they can tend to think that having just their Bibles and not even a study Bible is enough. But the fact is that the full Christian story of creation, rebellion, redemption and consummation is nowhere in scripture given just outright what you have to do is you have to have people who can say look at this is the full christian story and that's the story that we need and it's only when we have that story that then we find that endurance is probably a bit easier than it would be otherwise one of the things that i'm doing in the third chapter and the fourth chapter of my second book is I'm pointing out that Ecclesiastes is probably just an extended commentary on the third chapter of Genesis from verse 15 through 19, where God is pronouncing the dooms that he has brought upon the serpent and upon the woman and upon the man. And I'm not the first one to think of this. There's a guy named David Clements, who in fact says that Ecclesiastes is just an extended commentary on on those verses. And the point is that Ecclesiastes is making clear that there is going to be suffering in each of our lives, and that often we're not going to be able to anticipate it. And yet God has set causal regularities in the world, which are overall for our good. He's made the world a kind of stable place. Genesis 1 makes that clear by he separated the waters from the land, all that sort of stuff. He sees all this stuff as very good. The world holds those regularities, but in holding those regularities, it also conveys to us various kinds of sickness and suffering. So if you come down with cancer, it's likely that you're getting the particular cancer you get is ultimately explainable. Maybe not right now. It depends where medicine is on this, but is ultimately explainable in terms of these causal regularities that God's put in the world that have to do with biological creatures. So, so, in other words, breast cancer of certain forms has a genetic component to it. Mm -hmm. Well, more or less what it comes to is this. God holds those regularities in place, and therefore we don't know when we're going to get good or when we're going to get bad. But we as Christians are supposed to recognize that that's part of the way that God has made the world. And therefore, with the author of Ecclesiastes, we need to say, okay, when these bad things happen to me, it's not that God has just pointed at me and said, I'm going to give Travis cancer. Instead, it's that we are part of this world that he has made. And in his providence, he's allowed this to be part of our lives, but for our good. Mm. Because, of course, Ecclesiastes says that it's better to dwell in the house of mourning than at the parties. 
because it makes clearer what life is about. And one really fine commentary on Ecclesiastes has as its title, Living Life Backwards, mm-hmm. looking at the end, recognizing, as Henri Blochet puts it, great theologian, that from the time Adam and Eve disobeyed God and ate of the forbidden tree, that all of life is a funeral procession. All of life is a funeral procession and everything that happens to us that is in one way or another bad, whether it's physical, whether or not it's psychological, whatever it is, that all of those things are just part of what has followed from our first parents having brought sin into the world and our then having been willing to echo them and affirm what they did by being sinners ourselves. And then God calls us back to himself, often by the suffering in the world. As C.S. Lewis says, God can give us moments of joy, but he doesn't give us settled happiness. Because if he gave us settled happiness, we wouldn't look up and find him. In his later letters to people who were writing him for spiritual counsel, he ends up saying that we should live in cheerful insecurity live in cheerful insecurity. What a great line. I'm 73 and I'm definitely living in insecurity. Things get harder and harder. And yet I hope I'm cheerful about it in the sense of recognizing that God isn't going to let me go. And that what happens to me if I have the right attitude toward it will be for my good. I'm not going to flourish in this life. I don't like the talk about flourishing as a Christian in this life. I'm going to flourish when our Lord comes back. But in fact, I will flourish because of what God has providentially brought to me in this life that reorients me in such a way that I look at the stars that are really there, that really can guide me and let them guide my life. Um, you mentioned cheerful insecurity. There's I wrote that at the very top of the book. <laughs> yeah, page, isn't that a great phrase? It's just that a great is, phrase. Well, it, it's funny. Like, I feel like you're reading my notes right now because <laughs> you keep, I'm like, okay, I'm going to bring up Adam and like I said, I'm going to bring up Adam and Eve. And then you're like, and with our first parents. And I'm like, what is this guy crawling around in my brain? What is going on right now? That's a horrible thought, Travis, for you. I mean, uh, I actually, I had a student a few years ago who wrote me and he said, Dr. Talbot, I just had one of the worst experiences of my life. It's been several years since I had you. I was at Thanksgiving dinner and I could hear your voice. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, you didn't, I thought you were going to go down the the C.S. Lewis, the, you know, he whispers this whispers to us in our pleasures yeah. and shouts to us in our pain. It's his megaphone to rouse the deaf world. Yeah. Because so much of what you've done, you have threaded Lewis or Lewis is threaded throughout his, his shaper's perspective, but that's not all you bring in, in the second volume. I mean, the first volume is more of a, this is who I am. This is what suffering is. This is what we've got wrong about suffering and there's there's hope for you in the middle of it god's actually doing something for you and he's he's using this opportunity to shape and mold you to bring him closer into himself this world is not our home yeah then you bring it on the second volume a much more robust theological understanding of it you re, you root it in creation fall and redemption and then consummation and i i thought as i was reading that i thought okay I, 
it's going to sound terrible, but that's kind of the typical way of, of looking at it. But you, you put a different spin on it. Once again, you, you put a different spin, even when you went through the consequences of the fall. And I thought, okay, of course we have the consequences of the fall. We have man, he's working hard, but when you hit the woman and her consequences of her suffering, I went, Oh boy, what, what are we going to do here? And then you mentioned child birth and childbearing. Okay. Again, no, no issue, but then you bring it into parenthood. Yes. And I thought, Whoa, this explains a lot to me. Yeah. Describe a little bit of that and why you brought that up. Because yeah. I think a lot of parents need to hear this. Yeah. I got it from Alan Ross, who is a great commentator on scripture. He wrote one book on Genesis called Creation and Blessing, and he's written three volumes on the Psalms. He's got a commentary on Leviticus. He's the one who mentions that the Hebrew word that is usually used for childbirth actually probably doesn't mean that. It refers to the whole of rearing children. And the importance of that is that as wonderful as rearing children is, it includes lots of sorrows mm. and it includes lots of worries and so on and so forth. And if we don't recognize that, then we're not going to be prepared for the fact that God is again asking us to depend upon him, both for ourselves and for our children. One of my points when I'm talking about the doom that God spoke to the woman is that there is always going to be friction in marriage. Mm. That is part of what has come out of the fall. And the reason that's so important is that without that, it would be particularly possible, especially for women who I think have a, a stronger desire for the kind of deep personal relationship that they want to have with their husbands, they need to realize that this life and this relationship is not going to be paradise, that there are always going to be hard things within it. Sometimes when I'm counseling couples, it seems to me that it's awfully important to say, okay, now things aren't perfect, but why did you think they were going to be? And if you are trying to as a husband or as a wife, if you are trying to get your spouse to do things exactly as you want, so it seems perfect to you, you are engaged in a task that is not going to be fulfilled. It's not possible. We have to just recognize that this life is such that marriage, as wonderful as it is, I think it's the most sanctifying of experiences for most of us. In the Old Testament, Getting married was so much what was expected to happen to everyone that there's not even a word for bachelor. Mm. And so when Jeremiah is told that he can't marry, this is an absolutely awful thing. There's not even a word for it. And when God said that the only not good in the whole creation account, it is not good for the man to be alone. It was because we need the marriage relationship in order finally to be drawn out of our selfishness and so on and so forth. But in the midst of that, it means it's not going to be perfect. And if we don't recognize that, and if we don't recognize that rearing children is often going to involve sorrows and fears and all the rest, then we're going to think that 
well, God isn't being, God isn't being the person that I've always expected him to be. And there's something wrong with him Mm. rather than recognizing that, no, this comes out of the fall. One of the points that I make, Travis, and I'm sure you caught it was that God actually increased the amount of suffering in the world in Genesis 3, 15 through 19. He said that he was going to cause animosity between the serpent and the woman. With the woman, he's going to cause her, depends on the translation you read for whether or not it's uh, the word cause is there, but he was going to cause the woman to have pain in childbearing and so on and so forth. With the man, he curses the ground so that it's hard for the man to make a living. All of that is important. The suffering that God added to the world in everyday things is central to keeping us looking up at him. I say to my students, look at you're in college. You're supposed to be taking this to be at least the equivalent of a regular job. And that means at least 40 hours a week for the time you're in class, two hours outside class for every hour in and working on things. Of course, I don't particularly like to hear this, but I say to them, if you're not tired at the end of the day from having worked, you haven't worked hard enough. Mm. And how do they respond to that? <laughs> they usually hear it, and it's pretty seldom that I get somebody say, no, I'm not going to believe that. But my guess is that it, it stri- strikes them as a stretch, that this idea that life isn't supposed to be just pleasant, which, of course, has been the American way of looking at it for years now, that, in fact, life is supposed to be difficult, that Adam had to scratch is living from the ground Mm -hmm. is something that we particularly in the prosperous one third West just don't recognize anymore in the way that we need to. It's it's the other two thirds of the world that understands that life is not going to be just one pleasant experience. Teach me Taking that into consideration, you mentioned the material blessing. We've we've referred to that in our culture. And when we're talking about suffering, you also mentioned the fall, the consequences on the man and the woman, but we also have the serpent. Do you see, or how do you see perhaps, or help us to see this? How do we differentiate between suffering as I mean, we always know that it's allowed by God. Let's put it that yeah. way. Suffering yeah. is allowed by God. That's the theological yeah. way of doing it. But how do you differentiate between, like, because I look at Job and I go, this is a man who's suffering, but he is not privy to the divine counsel and what happens yeah. beforehand and not yeah. aware that he is, a, for lack of a better term, a, a chess game, a pawn in this, this game between God and uh, the evil one. Yeah, we never have a sense that he knows that that was what started the thing and that God put Job in Satan's gun sights by saying, have you considered my servant Job? So is that when we pray, Lord, please don't say, have you considered Travis? Have you considered Mark? (laughs) We don't pray that way. But how do you differentiate when a person is trying to understand this in their own life? 
look at their own suffering, situate their own story, creating yeah. that narrative. Cause, cause we do, we look to other people. We try to create the narrative in our own minds. Is it a result of Satan? Is it a result of, of spiritual warfare? Have I done something wrong? Or in Jeremiah's case, he did something right. How do you keep that perspective in place to differentiate between those quote unquote causes? Yeah. Yeah. Really good question. Part of what Ecclesiastes makes clear is that we are just not going to be able to tell a completely detailed, consistent, coherent narrative that things are going to happen to us that are going to surprise and shock us and dismay us because of the way that the world is now since the fall. Calvin said that from our standpoint, it seems as if fortune rules. Here's one of the strongest affirmers of God's providential control over the world. And yet he's willing to say, well, no, look, you've got to understand this. The way that it goes is that from our standpoint, we just can't see how this all goes. And things seem to happen merely by chance, which we are not going to get an answer to, at least in this life. I'm not sure we're ever going to get a complete answer to it because some of it is just based on God's sovereignty. The kind of other half of your question had to do with, well, let me deal with it two ways. One is how much are we in a sense to blame for the suffering that we undergo? And it's clear that in scripture, there's pretty significant portion of our suffering that in fact involves that. If you read Psalm 90, you really read about the Israelites bemoaning what life is like and how awful it can be. There's good reason to think that that psalm was written after something really awful happened to Israel, perhaps when they first worshipped the idol when Moses was up the mountain with Aaron, perhaps something else, but it applies to any of our lives to some degree. Our lives, we can have 70 years or perhaps have 80 years, but life is going to be toil and trouble. We need to pray God redeem the aspects in our life in the right sort of way. And so a fair amount of what goes on comes out of our first parents' sin. And by the way, rightly comes out of their sin in the sense that these causal regularities that God has set in the world, I don't want to call them causal laws because that makes them seem to stand independent of God. I want to talk about the causal regularities that God holds in place. These causal regularities mean that somebody can do something that is going to affect me several generations later. We know that genetically that happens. For instance, if there were an adequate, an adequately big nuclear disaster, let's say that we all had our genetic stuff modified in such a way that we couldn't see colors anymore, that would go on forever after that. In a sense, that's like what happened in the fall on the spiritual and psychological levels, that the sins of our parents continue to affect us. The way that Merleau-Ponty puts it, a, a great philosopher, is that human beings are not a species, they are a historical idea. So the picture is that we're not like the other animals, where you can say, okay, this is your species, we can explain everything about you in terms of the kind of thing that you are. Instead, 
our lives are explained in terms of our historical contexts, in terms of the kind of culture we grow up, the kinds of choices that our grandparents made, our parents made, that we make, so on and so forth. And all of that prolongs itself into the future. So a fair amount of what we see with sin in the world comes out of what we have done wrong. David handles that really well in Psalm 32, probably written after his sin with Bathsheba and his sending Uriah to his death, where he mentions in the first five verses that he wasn't willing to face up to his sin and to confess it to God. And he says, your hand pressed hard upon me until he was willing to confess his sin, at which point he started to listen to God. And then you get this wonderful stuff in verses 8 and 9 of Psalm 32, where what, in fact, let me read it so I get it exactly right. You get David say in verse 6, Therefore, let all the faithful pray to you while you may be found. Surely the rising of the mighty waters will not reach them. You are my hiding place. You will protect me from trouble and surround me with songs of deliverance. This is all after he's finally been willing to acknowledge his sin. But then in first person, you get this. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my loving eye on you. Who says that? My guess is it's not really meant to be David. It's meant to be God. It is God speaking to his people. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my loving eye upon you. And then you get the warning. Do not be like the horse or the mule, which have no understanding, but must be controlled by bit and bridle or they will not come to you. The point is that it is only because we have understanding, because we're made in God's image, that he is able to address us and persuade us to act in certain ways and not in others, and doesn't just have to force us, or at least have the threat of force in order to keep us near him. With a horse, a horse has a bridle. Mm -hmm. You don't want to pull hard on the bridle, you'll harden the horse's mouth. But when you want the horse to turn, you pull just a little bit on the reins in order for it to kind of put a little pressure on the side of the horse's mouth. The horse moves its head and goes the way you want it to go. That is physical. You can't really say to the horse and have it understand, I want you to go right instead of left. And you can't do that with anything below human beings. So more or less what it comes to is that God is constantly addressing us. And much of the way in which he gets our attention to address us is through our suffering, as Psalm 32 makes clear. But then here now is the other half of it, Travis. The other half is, in what sense is everything ordained? In what sense is God sovereign? In what sense is it that, in fact, nothing happens that falls outside of his hand? And that he is never having to have to resort to plan B, that always he does exactly what he pleases. Because scripture does affirm that. And it affirms it in such a way that we realize that even Adam and Eve's sin had been ordained by God, had been ordered before it took place. One of the clearest passages dealing with that is actually in Revelation where we're being told about the mark of the beast that are on people, that's going to be on people in chapter 8. And let me read from, oh, let's say, 
verse 5 of chapter 8 of Revelation. The beast was given a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemies and to exercise its authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to blaspheme God and to slander his name and his dwelling place and those who live in heaven. It was given power to wage war against God's holy people and to conquer them. And it was given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. All inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast, all whose names have not been written in the Lamb's book of life, the Lamb who was slain before or from the creation of the world. Now, it's that end stuff that makes clear that there is a book of life that has the title, the Lamb's Book of Life, that has existed from eternity past, and that the name of everyone who Jesus has died for was written in that book from eternity past, which tells us that nothing surprises God, that nothing falls out of his hand. What we cannot understand is how human free will and God's sovereignty can fit together. And that's the one place where Lewis makes a really big error in the problem of pain. He thinks, and the problem of pain, that if humans have free will, it means that they can do what God doesn't want and that God's just going to have to live with it. In Letters to Malcolm, which was published posthumously in 1964, he's come around to realize that it's not a zero-sum game where either God gets his way or we get our way, that somehow those two things are held together in Scripture, that somehow God's sovereignty is worked out through our freedom. One way that it's put in Proverbs in the 21st chapter is that the king's heart is in the Lord's hand. It's like a stream of water that he directs however he pleases. Mm. The king is the most sovereign of all earthly creatures, is able to decide things for himself, but ultimately his free decisions somehow in a way that we cannot fully understand, but we can understand why we can't fully understand it, somehow in a way that we can't fully understand, even the king's freedom comes under God's sovereignty. Mm -hmm. So we have to hold those things together. There are three great paradoxes in scripture. One is the Trinity, which if you think you can explain the Trinity, you're a heretic. <laughs> Another is the, <laughs> okay. Quite literally, quite literally, yeah. uh, you're, you're going to be a heretic if you think you can explain the Trinity. Similarly with our Lord's incarnation, how could he be fully God and fully man? The third great paradox is divine sovereignty and human freedom. And with each of those, we can understand why we can't understand them. They deal with things that are beyond what we see in this world. And the way that we understand things in this world is according to various causal laws and so on and so forth. But those laws are burst by what God shows us by means of the Trinity and the Incarnation and the way that his sovereignty does not cancel out our freedom. Mm. These are definitely deep thoughts. I mean, <laughs> these are these are deep thoughts, Mark. Going back for a second, um, you mentioned there's four volumes. You divided it up. But what are the next? What's three and four going to be? Yeah, yeah. The third volume is on the fact that God will never leave us or forsake us. And the first two chapters are going to be on language and communication, and the last two on providence. 
And the way that it goes is that language is, I think, the means by which God has gifted us, created us to be able to work free of the causal laws in the world and be able to set goals that we then live toward rather than are being just pushed by from behind by causal efficiency. Reductive naturalists or materialists, which are what most of the people are, the educated people in our society nowadays, they want to hold that ultimately everything is going to be explained about us, including our free choices, in terms of nothing other than the way that molecules end up interacting with other molecules. That ultimately would be a kind of determinism. What I think scripture makes clear is that language, which of course God used immediately in speaking to Adam and Eve, in verse 28 of the first chapter, he blesses them, he tells them to be fruitful and multiply and have dominion over the earth to subdue it in the right sorts of ways and so on and so forth. In chapter two, he speaks to Adam, giving him a prohibition of all the trees in the garden you may eat. And that's the idea that you can freely eat of every tree. And it's actually part of the command. The idea is that Adam is supposed to be wandering throughout the garden and sampling from every fruit tree. He's supposed to enjoy the pleasure. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you must not eat for the day that you eat thereof, you'll die. That can only, that requirement that Adam give himself wholly to God can only be framed within language. Mm. And so language is central to what human beings are. Now, this doesn't mean that if we have some child who can't develop language, someone who's deeply autistic, that the child is of less value. Doesn't mean anything like that, but it means that normally human beings are speakers. Mm. And that is tremendously important. Because, in fact, it's not possible for God to make promises to strike covenants with us independently of language. And so the first two chapters are dealing, one, just with the general way in which communication and language is central to personhood. Mm -hmm. The second of those two chapters, and they, they may get turned around, I haven't decided yet, but the second one is going to deal with the wonders of Scripture. And with all of the ways in which scripture is God's word, the way I like to put it is that scripture is supposed to become our primary language. It's supposed to become the language with which we think, we feel, we desire, and we speak. Probably the best example in the whole of Christian history, or at least one of the very best, is with Augustine and the Confessions, where again and again, What he ends up doing is not quite quoting scripture, but changing scripture just a little bit in such a way that he's using scripture as his own language. Thomas Williams has a great new translation of the confessions. And he says, look, I haven't done what most people have done, where I end up italicizing what looks like it's scripture and then saying where to find it in scripture, because that's inaccurate to what Augustine is doing. Augustine is thinking scripturally in such a way that the language has become his own. 
It is the language in which he lives and moves and has Mm -hmm. his being. That's what's supposed to happen to us. And scripture, with all of its wonderful attributes, is, in fact, the, the deposit that God has given us, which by his Holy Spirit allows us to be in the deepest communion with him in this life. And we need it desperately. So the first two chapters are going to deal with language and then with the language of scripture. The last two are going to deal with providence. One of the things I want to say is that this is going to be in the last chapter and it's pretty deep. But I want to say that God more or less sang the world into existence. Of course, Lewis says something like this, but I found it independently of Lewis on my own. It's it's in what? which one of the line, which one of the magician's nephew? Yeah, the magician's nephew, where magician's Aslan nephew. sings yeah. the world into existence. What I want to claim is that the statements of God speaking in the first chapter of Genesis can be taken largely that way. But the idea is that the world doesn't become independent of God. And this is the way that even Christians tend to think of it. If we think of causal laws, we think that God has spoken the world into existence. He said, let's separate the land from the seas and all this sort of stuff. And then the idea is that it's all going to stay in place in the way that it should. That's like thinking that God has made a box and then he walks away from it and the box goes on on its own. It's much more important to think, in fact, of God holding in place all of the causal regularities by singing in such a way that if it is creation ex nihilo, if it's creation out of nothing, if God were to stop singing, everything would disappear. There would be no junk or anything else. There would just be nothing. And so God sings the world into existence and keeps it in existence. And he sings each one of our individual stories in such a way that it really is our individual story. It's not just God singing. It's it's God having us sing what we sing. And so what I'm trying to do in the third volume is I'm trying to give people a picture of the way that God works in this world. The fourth Mm -hmm. volume is going to be on faith, hope, and charity, and then on the eschaton, and uh, dealing in more depth with New Testament claims about what faith is, what hope is, what charity is, and then what we can expect in the eschaton. One of the things that's interesting is that I think that in the eschaton, there will always be the sound of human singing in the background. And it's going to be, in a sense, the reason why Beethoven had to transition to the human voice at the end of his greatest symphony, the ninth. Mm -hmm. It was that it wasn't possible to make clear the joy that that great symphony was supposed to end up in after all sorts of dissonances along the way. It wasn't possible to represent that great joy other than by means of the human voice. And what happens when we sing is that we can affirm things, what we believe, we can state what it is that we desire, and we can feel those things, and singing pulls that all together. There's good reason to think that every human being is musical Mm -hmm. in the sense that we all use our voices in various kinds of ways. And it's interesting that with newborns, they immediately recognize their mother's voices. And the reason is for the last three months in the womb, 
they heard their mother's cadences and so on at a different register because it was going through the amniotic fluid, but they hear their mother's voices. And when they come out of the womb and they're put in their mother's arms, and maybe she says something like, well, hello there, how nice it is to see your face. The child immediately knows that this is the woman in whom my life has been. But she does that in a musical way. My wife will be listening to this and she will be so excited at this. My wife and I are both trained singers. So anything musical like that in the just the power of singing. I mean, that's one of the things that creation can't do in the same way that those who are his image bearers can. So that's an exciting, exciting thing. And now you said the second that's the third volume. What about the yeah. fourth volume? The fourth volume is the one on faith, hope, and love and on the eschaton. Oh, that's right. Faith, hope, and love. And, so what I'm and trying to do is I'm trying to keep each of these short enough, and particularly in the text, that, can I put it this way, that ordinary Christians can get through them? They can read, as you said, the first time they can read just the text. The second time, look up the scriptures, of which there are a lot that are in the text. The third time, start to look at the end notes and find that they can be drawn into greater and greater depth and greater and greater joy in understanding the depth of what God has done for us in Christ. I've Mm -hmm. had people who I would say tend to be allergic to theology because they think that it is life-deadening, who in working their way through the first two volumes have come to think, no, no, theology properly done creates sustains life makes it joyful and full mm-hmm. and that's what i mean it to do in each volume then the text is supposed to be just the first the first run at this stuff and then mm. finally the end notes fill things in well that's why i'm looking forward to the next two volumes i, I want to be able to fill in those gaps and and see that and i and i have appreciated the theology of it it's it's not just a dry theology for theology's sake. It's taking you into the story of who they are and the tension that they themselves felt, which, which we often don't get to do. We read the story and the details, but you've enabled us to feel the social and psychological dimensions of the world as they were encountering it. And then bringing in God's story over the top of it to, in essence, tie ourselves to it so that we might have hope ourselves. And I, I say I really do welcome the other two volumes. I've sincerely appreciated it. I've, I've just started making my way through volume two. Like I said, I'm about three quarters of the way done. But I've already recommended your first volume to several people just because I think that it does. I, I love the fact that you made it accessible. I love the fact that it's it's short. As you said, who wants to read a 600-page tome when you're in the middle of suffering? I mean, that's suffering in itself. Yeah, right. right. It's like, I don't need to add more suffering to my suffering right right now. Um, I needed needed a a quick insight into it. And and I really have appreciated the book, Mark. I've really appreciated you coming on the show. So what are some things that we can leave? You know, every so often, I try to end a segment with, here's your water bottle to take with you. This is something that you kind of take with you that you can want Great your picture. Family. Great picture. What is the water bottle that people can take with them as a result of this conversation? I suppose it would be that when they are startled by suffering, 
and perhaps profound suffering that, as Austin Ferrer, a close friend of C.S. Lewis's, said, we tend to find to be an outrage that they can recognize that God's goodness is behind the way that their life is being turned upside down so that they look up and they try to get reoriented and that ultimately the reorientation is not just to okay i've been suffering and here's the reason why which we often don't get an answer to as we've talked about but just as the psalmist says in psalm 119 through his suffering he in fact learned to value all of god's word he Mm. found himself enamored by what god was saying to him in scripture and he was living with a joy in being able to encounter god again and again through his word and seeing his whole life in the light of that where suffering to some degree tends to drop away a bit at that point even if we're suffering it's not our suffering that's most important what's most important is having this sense of the way that god the father loves us through his son jesus christ and comes to indwell us by means of his holy spirit so that no matter what happens to us in this life we can anticipate because of our lord's resurrection we can anticipate a day when dawn will come the morning star jesus christ will rise and we will spend all of eternity speaking with him face to face that is a very very encouraging and good word as we we finish up our time mark thank you for coming on Apollos Water. Thank you for this book. And I I hope and pray that God uses this to further his kingdom. Thank you. It's been really good to talk with you, Travis. Thank you. Our suffering is not the most important thing. God's love for us is. I told you that's deep stuff, but wow. I love the fact that Mark has not given in to his own suffering, but has instead used it and allowed God to use it to draw him closer to himself. I think that we as believers in the West need to pay more attention to suffering. Here at Apollos Watered, we are guided by four principles. We call it the Missio Holistic Approach. Missio simply means to send. Holistic means that the sum is greater than the individual parts. We believe that's the key to renewing the church in the West. It's an approach. It's not the approach, but it's an approach. It's not actually anything new, although we've put a new term on it. It's actually the classic faith, just very, very specific in what we're pursuing. We start with the scriptures and want to help you live out the word of God where you're at. Notice that Mark was constantly quoting scripture. We need to be able to imbibe the Word of God, to take it in, to know how to live it out in the midst of our world. Not just memorize it, not just know the propositions about God, but to know how to live on the stage of the world showing that Jesus is the Christ. The second part of the missiolistic approach involves exploring God's work in the past because we are building on the historic faith of the church and we need to know what happened before. 
we need to learn the lessons of those who have gone before. Know the, the circumstances in which they lived, the obstacles that they faced. We want to learn from their mistakes as well as draw inspiration from their successes. Several times you heard Dr. Talbot talk about St. Augustine and Aquinas and a, and a guy named Soren Kierkegaard and John Calvin and C.S. Lewis, and you know how much I love C.S. Lewis. All of these and so many more have contributed to the faith of the church over the centuries. We have to do more than complain about our culture. We have to learn to engage it. And Mark gave us a critique of our culture. That's his area of expertise. But we in the West don't have all the answers. This is another part of the missio holistic approach. This is why we talk to people like Henna Nation, who is telling us about Wang Yi and the Chinese church. Because in the third part of the missio holistic approach, we want to embrace global voices. Their experience of suffering can teach us. We need to hear from others around the world. We need to hear their voices because many of them have had to deal with so many things that we are just now dealing with. I love how Hannah Nation talked about that on the show a few episodes ago when she mentioned how the Chinese church was meeting over Zoom for some period of time because of fear of persecution and that we in the West, when COVID struck, are suddenly having Zoom church and trying to figure out if this is okay or not. This is where we need to hear from them and let them speak into our lives and our experiences. And the fourth part of the Missio Holistic Approach is embodying the faith where we're at. Because we want to be embodied, engendered persons in the midst of a broken world. God has created us as men and women in the flesh to live in the middle of this world. We are not just souls. We are bodies and souls together. And that includes some pretty deep things, understanding things like suffering, understanding what it means to be a man and a woman, understand what language does and how it influences us, understanding how our brains work and how God has wired us and how God has wired us to understand story and to put ourselves in stories. And it's not just me and Jesus and everything's going to be all right. It's understanding the brokenness of our world and our place in it. The Christian faith is for all of life. We are to pursue Christ's mission with all that we are in life. That's what the Missio Holistic Approach is all about. It's what we've been doing all along. It's why we talk to so many different kinds of people. It's what I have done in the churches that I've been involved in, and I've seen God revive each one, taking it from the precipice of despair and darkness where they were getting ready to close and watch life come. That God would bring that. And this is where, where prayer, we're understanding spiritual warfare and mental illnesses and, and just wisdom and how to live in this world and how to behave in this world. All of those things fall into the Missio Holistic approach. It's God's people calling upon him, trusting him, preaching the word. All of those are a part of it. Again, this is nothing new. This is nothing out of the blue. This is something that has been there the entire time and we're just putting a name on it. Jesus told us that we would suffer in this world, but he also told us that he would be with us. As Mark said, it may well be the suffering that brings us closer to him. It was a great conversation, and I hope to have you tune in next week as I interview Ann Snyder, who is the editor-in-chief of Comment Magazine. And remember, we're going to two episodes next week. And remember also that we're in our 10 for 10 challenge. We're looking for 10 people to partner with us in the month of February for $10 a month to help us to water the world, to make a difference in the lives of thousands of people around the world. 
And I want to thank our Apollos Water team for helping us water your world. This is Travis Michael Fleming signing off from Apollos Watered. Stay watered, everybody.